Welcome to PA Centered, a podcast designed to help listeners be a part of the solution to end sexual harassment, abuse, and assault. Each episode, we will take on a topic or current event to help spark conversation and break down barriers to building communities free from sexual violence. Hi everyone, I'm Jackie Strom, the Prevention and Resource Coordinator at the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape. I'll be your host today as we're joined by PCAR Language Access Coordinator Damari Rodriguez, Community Advocacy Coordinator Tatiana Piper, and Training Projects Coordinator Karen Galbraith to talk about language access. Welcome everyone. Hi Jackie. Hi Jackie. Hi Jackie. To get started, Karen, I'm wondering if you can tell us what language access is and why it's so important. Sure. Um, Thanks, Jackie. So I think ultimately when we talk about language access and the work that we do, um, the reason it's so important is because we want to provide access to support and services and prevention to all people to all survivors of sexual violence. And if we don't provide meaningful language access, that means that we're not meeting that goal. We're not meeting that mission of serving all survivors and their families and our communities. So we wanna make sure that we are doing everything that we can to reach everyone, no matter what language they speak or how they communicate. So um, ultimately, I mean, one of the main reasons why language access is important to the work that we do is because it's the law. So the Civil Rights Act of 1964 prohibits discrimination, which is based on national origin. And later there were court rulings that determined that under the umbrella of national origin fell language and language access. So any of us who are receiving any type of federal funding or you know, funding that originated with the federal government is obligated under the law to provide meaningful language access. So that's sort of, I mean, the box checking reason why we all want to be providing it. But we also, of course, want to be providing language access because of sort of the moral and ethical obligations behind it. You know, again, it's our mission to serve all survivors. We want to be making sure our prevention messages are reaching all corners of our communities, particularly those folks that are most marginalized, which very often includes people um, with limited English proficiency or people um, with disabilities who may not communicate in the, you know, in the same way as, um, you know, our centers are used to providing services. So we want to make sure that we're we're finding ways to be creative and to provide that access um, for all survivors. And when I talk about access, it's not just about, um, you know maybe a counseling appointment, which of course is very, very important, and we want to be providing language access for those, but it's also about making sure materials are translated and transcreated so that um, anybody who picks up a brochure can read that brochure and and get that information in a way that they understand best. Um, We also want to make sure that language access is available for folks who use sign languages. Um, You know, it's not just about spoken languages, but again, thinking about how Everyone in our community, or everyone in our communities, might be communicating and might best be able to receive the important information and services that rape crisis centers are providing. Um, so again, it's not just about like our services, but of course we want to make sure that our core services are being provided um, with language access in mind. But also, you know, very often rape crisis centers are the gateways to other 
services in our community. So whether that's providing, you know, access to medical care or access to justice, um, we want to be sure that we're able to provide survivors with all of their options and also to help educate our community partners about their obligations as far as language access goes. So, you know, making sure that our medical providers and hospitals understand their responsibilities as far as providing language access, that, you know, our law enforcement organizations and, you know, our courts understand their obligations. And again, this isn't just about what we have to do to be compliant with the law. It's really about, you know, meeting our mission, making sure that survivors can receive the services in no matter where they go and whatever services they decide are going to be best for them. So, you know, while it is important to um, do what we're supposed to do legally, it's maybe in some ways more important for us to be keeping in mind those important sort of moral and ethical obligations that we all have as part of our missions. Um, the other thing, we talk a lot in our movement about trauma-informed services and the importance of being trauma-informed. Um, I think we all agree that many of the folks that we're working with have experienced some sort of trauma in their past and are, you know, continuing to work through that. And one of our goals is to always work to mitigate those impacts and also to prevent further harm and to prevent further trauma. And one of the ways that we can do that is to provide survivors with services that they can participate in, in, in whatever language they're most comfortable expressing themselves. And so, you know, we know that for somebody with their, um, you know, in their primary language, they may be able to express themselves more fully and more completely than they can in, you know, maybe a newer language for them. And so it's also important to remember that language access isn't just for folks that can't speak any English, for example. It's also for people that maybe um, just feel more comfortable in one language versus another language. Even if somebody can communicate to some degree in English, that doesn't mean that they wouldn't benefit or choose to um, communicate or, or receive services um, in another language. So we always want to make sure that we're checking in with folks and not making assumptions on their behalf about, you know, how they'd like to receive services. I think those are really all great points, Karen. I think too, especially as you talk about being trauma-informed, I think it's also um, really important to think about um, how language access is connected to anti-racism work. Um, that's something within the last few years, I think our movement has really talked a lot about, you know, in order to end sexual violence um, and end sexual assault, abuse, and harassment, we have to, um, and all forms of oppression. And I think the big focus particularly has been around and around racism and then anti-racism work, how to dismantle racism within our institutions. And um, one of the things that I can say this anecdotally, but I think even statistically, um, language access often impacts communities of color. So black, indigenous, and other people of color often um, receive less access to services because of the barriers that are in place around language. So um, if you are committed to ending sexual violence, if you are committed to racial justice work, um, you have to um, also be committed to language access work and vice versa. If you're doing one and not the other, it's kind of, in, it's an incomplete picture because of how often it doesn't always impact communities of color but by and large it does I, I think particularly about some of the cases that have come out in the last few years um 
there was one in New York, which I think a lot of folks know about, where um, a, a survivor of domestic violence had filed a police report. Her police reports went untranslated and her um, partner killed her and her children. Um, that case caused a lot of changes within um, the NYPD, um, and, and they started contracting with a language services company to make sure that they provide um, interpretation 24-7. Um, but there was actually a case that was local. <clears throat> um, in, actually, in Pittsburgh, uh, there was, a, in, in the school district there, so not in, in our movement, but adjacent, um, there was a family, a Somali family who spoke Bantu, who um, their child was um, disabled and needed special education classes, was not receiving um, those services. And then additionally, was not getting the language access services that they needed. They eventually filed a lawsuit against that school district and won and then received the services that, that they needed. But what we wanna try to prevent is from things getting to that Point, right. So if we are being proactive, if we're making sure that we're provided language access because it's the law, um, we won't have to end up going to those lengths. Thank you both for explaining all of that. So we're here today to talk about how PCAR approaches language access. And so Tatiana, could you talk to us a little bit about what that has looked like? Absolutely. So before diving into the question, fully, I think history is important. And that history starts with just PCARs realizing that centers were struggling with answering the question during hotline calls or hotline checks that we do every year of how would you answer a hotline if someone spoke a language other than English? And also in realizing that our centers were struggling with answering that question, PCAR wasn't sure either. And that's when it became important that we seeked technical assistance from someone in our organization that knew what they were doing. Um, and that's when we went to Casa de Esperanza uh, to seek that um, TA. And what they ended up um, doing for us is really just walking us through the language access plan process. Um, and in that we created a core core group that was a dedicated group of people that really wanted to see PCAR have a language access plan. And we also involved someone from each department. So someone from our training and technical assistance team, someone who was connected to our CEO and CEO's office, also someone who was in fiscal communication. So that language access wasn't just touching you know, a group of people who were dedicated and were kind of pushing for the change and pushing for the expansion of knowledge, but it also was important to include everyone that had something to do with how we provide services, how we function as an organization, because the important part about language access um, is that every part of our business, every part of how we exist needs to be infiltrated with understandings of why language access is important, how to actually successfully um, provide our services. And as a coalition, our services are very different than that of a rape crisis center, but it's also important that we know what our services are and know where that's important for us to have language access integrated. Uh, 
And so additionally, what we realized and what the Casa de Esperanza, the DA they gave us was that we needed to be checking in monthly about our language access process and about our language access updates. Um, so that more started as a meeting with the core core group and that soon transitioned to actually we need to be having these monthly meetings with everyone in the coalition so that everyone is getting the same information um, and we're all able to problem solve together and also learn together and um, continue this process because our language access plan isn't just a one and done uh, tool or one and done document. Our language access plan is an ongoing process and one that goes month to month. We change things up. We realize what's working, what's not working. We've developed uh, one protocol and realize actually no one's using this. So what can we do differently so that we're actually still completing the necessary steps to provide meaningful language access. Um, and so also, so again, it really just goes into taking the time to keep digging into why we're, why we're dedicating ourselves to language access, why we are trying to learn how we are evaluating our processes and also our policies and procedures um, so that we can continue to have a floor to ceiling approach. Thank you for explaining all of that. I know being a part of it myself that it's been a journey and we've learned a lot along the way as you described. And so because of that, I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about the barriers that we faced while starting this language access plan and trying to implement it. So Tamari, are you able to talk with us about that? Absolutely. Um, so one of the things that um, one of the challenges we had was, um, you know, Tanziana had mentioned that we should have everyone, a person from each department um, on the core core group. We weren't actually able to accomplish that, um, unfortunately, with with our language access plan. Um, we got a few people from across departments, but not we didn't hit our target. Um, but we we made sure to invite them to our meetings when it made sense if we really needed input like sometimes with fiscal um, stuff so we'll we'll talk a little bit more about kind of the financial stuff later because um, that's a big that's a big barrier to language access right is always the money um, another barrier that we faced was vital documents like how do we determine what a vital document is I think that um, when you're a direct service provider or victim service provider, I think it's pretty easy to determine what your vital documents are, right? So it would be like an intake form, for example, or um, maybe like your general services brochure. But because we're not quite a direct service provider, uh, I think we we struggled to figure out like what our vital documents, would, what, what would we consider our vital documents? Um, and then lastly, what languages to prioritize? Um, because I think we want to provide language access to as many people as possible. But that's not always possible, right? So partly because of funding, right? But also, how do you determine what languages, like I said, what languages do we prioritize? Like, I think 
Spanish is often one that comes up a lot. But then after that, that can vary because we're serving the entire state. We're not just serving one community or another. So um, eventually we landed on whatever, if 5% of the population speaks a particular language, we would prioritize getting things translated into that language. And then from there, whatever amounts are sort of closest to that, we would prioritize those. Um, and I think we, we eventually also decided that the top three to five languages would be um, the ones that we select to translate materials into. And also, if we get requests for translation, we will always accommodate um, whatever requests come in. Can I just chime in on that uh, for one quick second? And, you know, like Dee said, we sort of thought about how do we identify which languages we should prioritize. And I just want to say that what's been really interesting to me, and I think maybe, well, I won't say all of us, but I think it's definitely been interesting or interesting to some of us, is that as we've like dug more into language access, what we found out is that, you know, the data that we have is only as good as sort of the way it was collected. So to determine the languages spoken throughout our states or you know, counties or communities, we're very often relying upon census data. And what I came to learn and didn't realize was that the census doesn't take into account people that may be deaf or hard of hearing. And so it really focuses on those spoken languages. So again, even the information that we have to go on is not inclusive is not comprehensive and so you know i just want to really highlight that you know as tatiana was saying earlier i mean this is a learning experience these documents that we're creating like we really think of them as living breathing things that we're constantly revisiting and thinking through because if we waited until we were perfect we wouldn't do anything and so i mean for me that's been a big lesson is to just you can only um you know, work with what you know, and as you learn, you continue to get better and better. And I just really have been grateful to so many of my coworkers who have really pushed this work forward and just said, you know, we can't wait on this. We just have to really dive in and learn from our mistakes and keep growing. But again, you know, we have to think about what information do we have and what information might we still need to find and what information might be like imperfect, but that we still need to work with. That's making me think um, what Tatiana said earlier about that floor to ceiling approach and really trying to make sure that we were able to provide the most basic services in other languages, right? That we were making those accommodations, but that we could also dream big and think about, oh, what would it look like to have our newsletter go out in five different languages? And right now we might not have the capacity to make that happen, but we have this wish list of all the things that we hope we can one day do, but we want to start with the things that we absolutely need to do to make sure that we're reaching as many folks as possible. So I know that's one thing I learned, but I'm wondering about some other lessons that we might have learned throughout this process. So um, there's a few of those. The first being buy-in. It is super important that you have buy-in from folks in your organization across levels, not just folks at the top, but um, across departments, across, you know, like maybe your leadership, but also your management team. Um, you know, department supervisors, because once you have a plan in place, those are the people like your your supervisors or your department directors 
are going to be the ones that help you carry out that plan. Um, so if they're not in it and they're not buying in, it's going to be really hard to get that implemented across your organization. Um, Another thing that we've learned is that proactive planning is really, really, really important. That you're doing stuff on the front end rather than as an afterthought. So um, to elaborate, like you wanna budget for stuff. I, I kind of talked about this earlier briefly that um, funding is always a big barrier to providing services and particularly language access. Um, you wanna make sure that when you're doing your budget for the year that you have a line item around, you know, translation or tra or interpretation, um, or maybe even captioning, right? Especially as we move towards a more virtual workspace, captioning becomes increasingly important for deaf and hard of hearing individuals. Um, so you want to think about that. Um, what line items are in your budgets to make sure that that you can cover those costs um, throughout the year. Um, in addition to that, like readjusting your thinking about what you're accomplishing. So when it comes to having um, trainings that are or services or, or things that are in other languages are available in languages under, other than English, it means that like for us that we may offer fewer trainings, but they'll be more accessible. So we're focusing on quality over quantity. So you're in a way, you know, people are like, well, you're reaching less people if you have fewer trainings. Not necessarily. You actually might, might be reaching more people because now you have a training that's accessible in more languages than just English. So sometimes it's just reframing and thinking about, oh, it, we're actually not reaching less people. We're actually probably reaching the equivalent amount of people. Um, yeah, I think those are some of the things that we learned. And I would say also, Dee, I think one of the one of the huge things that we learned is that we should really be taking leadership from those who are not monolingual speakers and taking leadership from multilingual speakers because they're the ones that should be influencing those. Are, they are the ones that have the knowledge um, and myself as a monolingual speaker um, needing to take a step back because I don't hold the answers for a community that I'm not a part of, but I can sure show up and support and be a voice when their voice isn't being heard. And I think that's a huge lesson that we've learned in this process and continuing to learn in this process is it's okay not to have all the answers, but it's also very important to get your answers from those that have them and that live and walk the life. I think that is a really great point. Um, folks that are multilingual or bilingual um, have that that sometimes that life experience. I think to add to that is also yes, take leadership from folks who are bilingual, multilingual, but be very careful about tokenizing those folks. Um, I always say like it's great to have bilingual staff at your organization, but make sure that you're compensating them properly. That you are. Um, not not putting more on their role than is is feasible so like someone may be able to provide services in say spanish but they may not necessarily they shouldn't necessarily be translating for example or interpreting those are separate roles right so um like we wouldn't ask somebody who wasn't an advocate to be an advocate and, and provide services in that way you shouldn't be asking folks who are multilingual or bilingual to be um 
acting outside of their job role. So for example, I'm bilingual myself, but um, I shouldn't be asked to say translate something unless that is specifically written within my job description and being compensated for it. That's such an important lesson. And I know that um, we've had to struggle with that in the past. And it's definitely an issue that still comes up at centers. And so I really appreciate you bringing that up as a really important lesson that we've learned. Um, it can be easier to do it that way, but it doesn't mean that it's the right way to do it, right? So as we learn more things, we we change our practices. And I think with language access, that's the perfect example of how we've had to kind of overthink and um, overhaul all of the different ways that we do things to make sure that we're meeting folks' needs. So the last question that I have, and this is for everyone, what resources would you recommend to an organization or a rape crisis center who's just getting started on their language access plan? Well, I would say, you know, just to go along with developing the language access plan, if you don't have one, it's important to have those conversations, have those meetings um, to just develop a language access plan. So I would suggest, you know, the language acts are limited English proficiency toolkit by Casa de Esperanza. That is the, the uh, toolkit that PCAR used, the template that PCAR used in developing a language access plan. And so we also will be sharing our PCAR's language access plan um, in the future. And so if you're wanting to kind of use both of those things together, it might be helpful to start there. I also wanted to say too that um, in addition to the LEP toolkit from Casa de Esperanza, Casa de Esperanza themselves offers uh, training and technical assistance on language access as they've provided to us. That's a available to victim services providers. Um, they get funded to do that work. So if you are, <clears throat> looking for assistance around language access, um, you can always reach out to PCAR, but also Casa de Esperanza as well. Um, PCAR's webinar series uh, is also another resource that I would recommend. Um, the, there are two of them, um, the first being um, an abbreviated version of the regional trainings that um, Karen and I did last year. Um, it goes over a few things, including um, language access requirements for centers, so some of the, the things we discussed at the beginning, like what, what the law requires of um, providers and also um, how to use our, our language access services that are free to rape crisis centers. Um, and it also goes over how to access some of the resources that we created that are on the online community. I just say, I think the most important thing um, to me in doing this language access work has been the notion of doing this as a team, you know, sort of what we highlighted earlier in that recommendation for from Casa de Esperanza for us to create that team because Again, we're also learning and when we're working together, we can be holding each other accountable, helping each other think in new and different ways. And so I would really recommend again that that folks not look at this as one person's job. This really is something that should be part of every person's job description and also to make sure that people are really supporting each other in doing the work.
This has been so great. I want to say thank you to all of you for joining us to talk about language access and what it's looked like at PCAR. So hopefully other folks can learn and follow along with our process as we go about. So we'll make sure to link to all kinds of resources in the description of the episode, um, including the ones we mentioned today and then a few others that we have found helpful. So that's all the time that we have today. I want to say thank you again to all of you for joining us. If you or a loved one needs help, a local sexual assault center is available 24-7. Call 1-888-772-7227 for more information or find your local center online at pcar.org. Together, we can end sexual violence. Any views or opinions expressed on PA Centered by staff or their guests are solely their own and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of PCAR or PCAR's funders.